0: Welcome to Outspoken Voices, a podcast from Family Equality that's by and for LGBTQ plus families. I am Emily McGranahan. I'm the Director of Corporate and Foundation Relations with Family Equality, and I am the proud adult daughter of lesbian moms.
1: I'm Dakota, and I am the video producer and storyteller here at Family Equality. I, too, have lesbian moms and am just so excited to join you in presenting this podcast today.
0: I'm really excited to introduce Sunu Chandi, who is a social justice activist, civil rights attorney, and creative writer. She is currently the legal director of the National Women's Law Center. She also serves on the board of the Transgender Law Center and is active with Split This Rock, a poetry and social justice organization in Washington, D.C. Her collection of poems, My Dear Comrades, was the winner of the 2021 Terry J. Cox Poetry Award. And we got to talk to Sunu about her work, about her art, about her activism, and hear a few of her poems. So we're going to share the links on the show notes, and Regal House will publish her book in
1: 2023. Look out for it.
0: Sunu, the first question we ask everybody, who
1: is in your family and how was it formed? Well, thank you so much for having me on um, my name is Sunu chandi and in my immediate family we have um, our daughter who's 11 and a half I have my partner spouse Erica and we also have her grandmother who lives with us who just and she just turned 96 in June of this year. So we have a very multi-generational family. When I met Erica, she was responsible for her grandmother because her mom had passed away a year before that. And so I met them together. And so as our uh, relationship developed, that's our family, the four of us in, in, in D.C. And I have my parents who are immigrants from India who are in Chicago and my brother is there.
0: So on your your website, your bio says in the quote that you are a social justice activist through your work as a civil rights attorney and a creative writer. And I really just loved that conceptualizing of your of your work and what you do. And I would love your thoughts. Are those that civil rights attorney work and your creative writer work are those two different branches of social justice work for you? Or do they, how do they or do they blend together?
1: Yeah, they they definitely have moments of overlap. I have um, some poems that are really directly about even particular cases after they're resolved or experiences I've gone through as I've reviewed boxes and boxes of documents. I have a poem called "Refuse to Sign," which is all the different things employees write on their records, and there's definitely some direct overlap. But there's also civil rights work that involves briefs to the court. And it's also changed over time. You know, when I worked in the government as a litigator, we were filing briefs as the party in the case, or I was working at a government agency when we were writing regulations. So there, there may not have been as much overlap. Now at the National Women's Law Center, we also write amicus briefs, which are much more sort of the story and the policy of what's at stake. And so there's room to really be more creative in terms of telling the story of the impact of why an issue is important. And I think poetry does that really well. Um, Sometimes it tells, the story in in an emotional way that can land sometimes much more than a graph or a chart. And so I definitely see some overlap between these areas of work. You know, I went into law because having immigrant parents, they wanted me to be able to earn a living and to sort of be able to support my family. And I also really, really love civil rights law and public interest law. But poetry has always been this other channel that has also existed. That allows me to sort of look at the world in a certain way and see metaphors and to see relationships between things in this other way. So I really enjoyed being able to do both.
0: I like that it sounds like there can be uh, that civil rights sort of lawyering in your poetry and then poetry in lawyering. Through this past year in particular, have you found yourself leaning more to the
1: or other way to be expressing your particular activism? Well, both have really continued. What's been great in the last year is I was able to connect with a community of writers who really were supportive in terms of carving out the time and the accountability, but also the encouragement to make time to really spend on poetry and revising poems and creating a manuscript. So in the last year and a half during the pandemic, I did more intentionally take time to connect with the poetry community and to spend time on that work, you know, while working full-time as a lawyer and, and having the family life as well. So it, it's just been a drive. And through different events, I've really gotten wonderful feedback from individuals. And in the legal space, I mean I did I did a session for the ABA. On, on sort of racial justice. And someone wrote to me and said, can you please send me that poem? It was one of the poems about affirmative action and she wanted to show it to a partner at her law firm. And she said, I'm trying to talk to him about diversity and inclusion. And I think this poem will really send the message. And, and so I sent it to her and she said, I didn't know that was your poem. Um, she thought I had just shared it at the event. So we had a really nice connection over that. And she said, you know, I had mistakenly taken pride in thinking I should be proud of going it alone. And it was just, it's just, she said, you know, I'm sitting at my laptop crying. Just because sometimes knowing that you're not alone and feeling that community, even if you're going through a hard thing together, can really make all the difference.
0: Dakota and I were incredibly fortunate to get to read some of the your manuscript for your Forthcoming book of poetry. We're really excited to also have you share some of those poems so that we can also sort of talk about them. But then just everyone can enjoy the brilliance of of your poetry. So for for folks listening, the poem the book of poetry is going to be called My Dear Comrades, and it's going to be published in 2023 with Regal House Publishing. We'll have links at the bottom so folks can sign up to learn more and get updates of uh, as the book is is coming out. Your poems are so beautiful and they're so. Personal and they tell such a story and such a journey. And so, the first poem I would love if you if you would read with us is your poem "Too Pretty." Uh, And if you could also share, you know, when you wrote that and sort of where you were, you know, what was happening as you wrote that particular poem.
1: Sure, this is um, one of the main poems that comes from you know New York City subway life. There are so many stories that happen in that space where people of all different backgrounds, beliefs, classes, you know, are together, often smushed together uh, before the pandemic on a daily basis. And so this this poem came out of one of those experiences. So I'll read it. It's called Too Pretty. October on the subway, roses at my side, kids being loud. One skinny girl with a cap and a pretty smile gets up to give me her seat and takes this chance to sit on her friend's lap. I read the paper and look over at these girls. So free and easy, they are laughing, laughing. I look at the pink pink roses and how I say I am not a romantic and how this whole roses thing is going to ruin my reputation against romance. I watch the girls. I watch the skinny girl in boys clothes and pretty smile flirt with all the other girls. So free and easy, they are laughing, laughing. And the man next to me, he is also watching, watching. And the man next to me, he leans over and says to me, Hey, miss, hey, miss, that's too pretty to be a boy, right? As if somehow that thought disgusts him, as if he wants some agreement about this disgust. And me, I am just relieved that he knows that I'm a miss and not a pretty boy. So I just shrug and I say nothing because it is 1997 and I am still afraid. Afraid to say, what does a she look like? And what does a boy look like? And what does too pretty look like? And what is your problem exactly? And I don't know whether his disgust is that he thinks girls who look like Boys should be beat up or boys who look like girls should be beat up because we know they both are. I only know that I was relieved that he did not know my pink, pink roses were for a girl. And somehow I have the safety of passing. And I think to myself, you all sitting there, laughing, laughing, sitting there on your sixth grade girlfriend's lap, so free and easy laughing, laughing, be safe, my handsome girls, be safe, my pretty boys.
0: I love that one so much. Thank you. You know, when what really comes to my mind and what feels so true is even today, meeting other LGBTQ plus families, just young, young LGBTQ plus people, but also young people with LGBTQ plus families whose experiences I can most identify with. I see so many who are so out and so open and that, f- that free, that word you use, they're so free, and I feel so joyful for them and also so jealous and scared, and it's such a mixture of emotions because it is a freedom that I didn't get to feel, and that I'm happy they can feel it, and I'm also sad mm-hmm. that I didn't that I didn't get to experience that. H- have you changed? Have, have your gut reactions to seeing mm-hmm. that freedom in younger people or just young people in general, that freedom changed, that fear changed, or does it still feel relatively the same mm-hmm. to you?
1: Yeah, it really, I mean, as a nation, we've gone through so much in the last few years. I think it's it's been quite a roller coaster. I do think some of it depends on where you live, uh, your immediate community, who's around you whether your school is a supportive space or your house of worship is a supportive space. But I also think sort of the politics and who's in power really sets the tone for our country too, right? We were in a place where at least on the books, our rights were getting sort of better and better. And then we just went through these years where, you know, the head of our nation and and our government agencies were all saying we don't have these rights and they do play a role. In helping to set our culture and behavior and norms and so i'm really relieved that now that we have a new administration some of that is being corrected in short order um, but we still need you know the rights on the on the books like the equality act to really have these kinds of rights across the nation that said that's only one piece of it there's so much education that has to be done and also exposure and as you're saying Most of the time, a lot of time kids will say something because they don't know otherwise, right? My daughter, even in DC, was told by kids in in the playground, like, you can't have two moms or you you need to have a dad. And things that, you know, many people in our community who are maybe listening to this have faced and have talked with their kids about, you know, what are the things you can say in response to that? And thankfully, my daughter was at a school where she knew she could say something because the principal was on the playground. And she pulled her over and said, oh, he said this. And the principal said, well, let's talk about that. Um, You know, you do have two moms and that's different families have different makeups and that's fine. And sort of talked it out. But if you don't have someone with authority in that space, it can be very hard. And I imagine for kids, they have to make decisions every day about what to be out about and what struggles to take on. And I think Part of what we can do in our families is is, is brainstorm with our kids about, you know, here are the five ways you can respond that are all truthful, right? Like, I don't want to talk about that, or that's private, or, you know, I have this information I want to share, or let me educate you. And it might be different based on the day, and that's fine. But I do think as LGBTQ families, we need to work with our kids, especially younger kids, to help brainstorm how they can Address those questions, and you know, whenever someone is out in their bio or just in you know work that is unrelated to LGBTQ stuff, it really is so powerful. You know, my friend uses this term microinclusions, right? Like, like yes, we have microaggressions all day long, but like think of the microinclusions. When I called a government agency um, recently, she said okay, but if you um, want to take out this money to use for this purpose, you'll have to get your, and I just waited for her to say husband and she didn't. She said, you'll have to get your spouse to sign off on that too if you're married, right? That's a micro inclusion, which is so rare, but so important. Or if you go to the doctor's office or the teacher's form, we notice if it says parent one or parent two or guardian or caretaker or mother or father, right? And every year I email the teachers and I say, you've sent this form out and it says mother and father and they say, oh dear. you know. But it just takes time to update and to systematize and to make sure people feel included and their families feel included. So there's a, there's a lot of work that happens, but I think with all of those changes, more and more people can feel empowered to be themselves and to be truly themselves in our world with their families, with their gender expression, with their pronouns. And and we'll keep working at that. I don't know about you, but I found,
0: especially as, this, as the weather has gotten warmer and I'm outside more in my community, which is a really actually pretty queer celebratory space, I'll still sometimes have my mask on and I just... I'm beaming at the person who I can see expressing themselves and feeling comfortable in their own expression that day, or the couple holding hands, and I'm just beaming at them because I'm like, "Yes, you all look so beautiful today. You know, everyone looks lovely. Your your joy is so beautiful." And I just have the mask on. I'm like, "Oh, that's right. You're just I'm just look like I'm crinkling my eyes at you, and I have to remind myself to just like I don't know. Like, I don't want to just keep walking around giving everyone a thumbs up. All of my like, you know." queer siblings but i'm in in my mind i'm just like yay because yay for you and also for little me you know i think about little kid me mm-hmm. who didn't see my parents holding hands in public until i was 13 and that was because we were in mm-hmm. a explicitly queer space and then it was finally safe mm-hmm. for them you know so i when i right. see these other families and i see other people i it feels so much a joy for them and then for, for younger folks who are seeing these role models now and can see this um that joy being being modeled that yeah makes me very happy and it also is such a good point of creating tools within families so that when you do get any sort of questioning or pushback and what your your daughter heard on the playground is like, oh boy, yes, I heard that on the playground years ago. That's still going around the playground, you know, I'm like, oh come on everybody. You know, but but the change can still be happening. And also how to answer or respond to those, those the, the bias or the questioning in a way that can, doesn't like, how do we make sure that our kids joy and pride in their families, doesn't get also chipped away at, you know, from, through moments like that. It is a balancing. And I think um, finding queer spaces and celebratory allies Those to me, at least growing up, that would sort of refill my pride cup, you know, after having to go back then into the classroom or some other space. So I think it's always so important to be refilling that cup a little bit.
1: Because you're mentioning the micro inclusions and um, just the importance of language, I just want to call attention to one of the lines in Comrades, specifically where you were talking about the nurse who was working with you in the fertility clinic who did use the word partner, but then mess it up in another way. And I wonder if we could just talk about that a little bit. Yes, I will. I'll never forget that. Right. So it was the many year journey that I went through sort of the infertility and fertility processes. And there were so many little highlights and lowlights in that. And one was when this nurse um, I was relieved because she said, oh, your partner will be giving you the injection. Let me show you. And I was like, oh, wow, she's using this gender inclusive term. And then in the next line, she said, yeah, just tell him to do X, Y, Z. And then I just found it so curious. And I said, like, did she only attend half of the training? Or did she assume that her South Asian pa- like patient, it wouldn't apply to them? Like it was, I found the whole thing so curious, because I was like going down a good road. And then and then she messed it up. But you no, know, as we know, these are daily occurrences, right, where we feel included or excluded. I mean, something that happened recently, I was filling out two forms recently. One was, you know, visiting the, the White House for the pride celebration, which is such um, a, a wonderful joy after what we've lived through in the last few years. But their, you know, paperwork, their form, their security form, or their, you know, visitation form, only had male and female. Um, drop downs, and I thought, you know, there's just room to grow. And having worked in the government, I know that could probably take a long time and lots of efforts and lots of approvals, but I am confident that that work is being done on many fronts. And you know, the same day I was filling out another form in another space, and it just, and I think the good thing is that it surprised me because I'm now seeing you know prefer not to say or other genders listed there and just having the full reality of our humanity reflected in in our paperwork and how we're referred to in our families is so powerful because it's this is about our own sense of self and, and liberation and, and creating space for that in our communities. The exclusion
0: rings so loud when you are looking at a list or having to sign, parental forms, and your family, they didn't even think your family could even be in that space, or they didn't think your identity could possibly exist. Like, that feels so incredibly loud to those who are excluded. And then on when you just add that parent slash guardian, if you, you know, but that tiny change also becomes then so exciting and so loud to to see. But you, you started to share some of your infertility and fertility journey, and I would love for you to read another one of your poems, Grade for Peaches, which so powerfully sort of s- speaks to some of that,
1: that experience. Sure. So this poem is called Grade for Peaches. The board-certified specialist doctor gave me these parting words. Do what your grandmother's ghost tells you to do. He told me this when I insisted on some additional, perhaps magic, instructions that would make it all work this time. I left the appointment with two fertilized embryos inside of me. The board certified specialist doctor said that I had produced grade four eggs. When I asked what this meant, he said, imagine we are talking about peaches and that you are sorting them into categories. The best ones are rated grade five. Those go to restaurants. Now we never see grade five, but grade four eggs are very, very good. They're like the grade of peaches that would go out in front on the fruit display stand. Earlier, the embryologist had also said that these were beautiful embryos. She did not come off as someone who would go around casually handing out compliments, and so I decided to believe her. The board certified specialist doctor, trained in giving patients in just my situation, only realistic expectations, said as he completed the procedure, say goodnight to your babies. He was smart enough to know that we can somehow train ourselves to hold hope, love, and realistic expectations in our heart at the same time. He told me to be brave, to be brave, and he was not talking about the many painful injections in my hip and in my stomach or the many bitter medicines, but to be brave instead with my heart. I took another deep breath and wished for the good cells to multiply and to grow like grade four peaches. I decided to follow the board certified specialist doctor's instructions. This lovely, humane doctor who talked about working in his garden and who had his daughter playing the piano as his cell phone's ringtone. This doctor who invited my partner into the room on his own initiative for the medical procedures. So based on his warm personality and his medical credentials, I decided to follow his last bit of medical advice to do what my grandmother's ghost tells me to do my grandmother's ghost is my father's mother she has been a ghost for 17 years for the second half of my life the clearest memory i have of her is that she cried and cried with happiness whenever we would arrive to visit her in a place called vango outside of the village of thiravala in kerala india this scene took place once every four years during my childhood I was terrified by the depth of her love and by how long she would cling to my father upon his arrival. My parents did not give her the precise dates of our trips so that in case there were delays, she would not worry. So she was given some hint that we might come during a particular month and then we would just arrive. Grandmother waited and waited for my father's visits and cried with joy when he came home, and cried with sadness when he left, and again began her long wait. My grandmother's ghost teaches me patience. She tells me to love, even though these beings may not come to me for a long time, and even though I have no idea if or when they will ever come to me for good. She tells me to love them even if they are just an idea, even if I just have to imagine them. She tells me to love them if they take the form of an adopted child five years from now. She tells me to love them, the idea of them, and to love the efforts that went into their creation. From my grandmother's ghost, I learned that sometimes you have to wait a long time for beings you love. And sometimes you are very sad while you are waiting. I learned from her that tears can be complicated and can mean a lot of things all at once. Like, I'm so glad that you're finally here. And then I'm mad at you for taking so long. I learned from my grandmother's ghost that love is to be expressed, that hugs can be long and that you should allow your children to pursue their dreams, even in distant lands. I learned from her that you may not know how or when your children will come to you.
0: At the time, you know your, your, your poetry is so in, insightful and so beautiful and you're describing so beautifully the the hope and the bravery and the sadness that can come when you're as you're going through a family building journey in, in whatever form that is taking. At the time, were there spaces and other peers that you were connecting with, those sort of comrades that you reference in the book's title, but also in some other poetry? How, how did you find that support to be going through all of those ups and downs?
1: Yes, um, I was so fortunate to be living in, in Brooklyn during all of those years. And I definitely should give a shout out to the LGBTQ Center in Manhattan, um, and Terry Bogus, who ran so many programs um, for wannabe moms, wannabe parents, um, trying to connect folks who wanted to create families together, um, groups that had support for those who are going through the adoption or foster care process. You know, being New York City, they had so many resources, and that was so helpful there were also groups like um, Single Mothers by Choice, um, because you know I was between different relationships and absolutely planning to do this on my own. I felt very strongly about starting a family and and I love kids and and really wanted to to make that a reality in my life one way or the other. And so all of these different communities online and in person were so crucial. that experience and you know as i started down the the road of adoption sort of knowing other families that had gone through that because that can also be an incredible um, emotionally um, awaiting process that can may be many stops and starts as we know um it can and, and and there's really a hard to tell how long the process will take and once you've decided that you want to create a family It can be really hard to not have that work out in a number of ways on a number of fronts and to sort of, you know, always, of course, honor the wishes of the birth parents if it's an adoption situation. And so there may be a few rounds of that that prospective families go through. And so it is definitely a journey. And also the rules change. I mean, it's sort of practically hard. Like, what forms do you need? What steps do you need to go through? What agencies do you need to work with? Um, So there's a lot of practical stuff that can really um, be difficult to figure out on your own. And there's also the emotional journey, which absolutely having others go through that and and be there for each other is so crucial and yeah the title of the book is my dear comrades and that was taken from uh, this really funny landlord we had um, in Fort Greene, Brooklyn, really sweet guy, and he would he would email us about literally like the broken backlight on the in the porch or just like you know fixing something in the apartment. And every email he would say like, "Hey comrades," and it just was this really interesting word that he used. And he was a lovely guy. And then when I thought about you know I think about comrades these days, I think about the other women at the infertility clinic, and so that's the title of that poem and then it sort of I zoomed out and thought about so many of these poems are about um, going through experiences and finding community as part of that and I hope that this book provides that for other people as well and that's really what motivated me to pursue I'm thinking about getting it published.
0: Those are all such important truths about the the variety of journeys to parenthood and how so many can be so fraught and the i loved grade four peaches with the this idea um, from your grandmother's ghost of patience of and love can still exist even as you're waiting that sort of waiting can be um also that act of love and loving and so one topic that I see frequently coming up in spaces and lgbtq plus queer spaces and family building spaces that family equality is creating as an organization is that sort of when do I know it's time to start looking at other options to start changing plans and that's everything from working with a different adoption agency to you know we have these f- frozen embryos or some additional donor sperm but we've decided we actually are not going to have additional, you know, kids. There's so many choices that go in for everybody mm-hmm. at every step along the way, but some can be really, you know, really difficult to make. And for you, were there tools um, or spaces? Like what helped you feel that a different, like the, that the different step or um, that different path was right mm-hmm. for you to, to go for or look to?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's such a big topic. And I really started in my in probably my mid 20s, my late 20s to really think about this. And it was at one of the probably pride events where somebody was tabling about how the range of ways that people can begin their families. And I think that really inspired me just sort of Pushed, pushed me off to, to start that journey. And so I'm just thinking as you asked that question, there were so many chance moments that you know actually inspired me. And ultimately, when I when I started the adoption journey, it was because I had um, this other um, queer family and they had gone through the adoption journey. And so I felt inspired. I felt like if they can do it I can too and I really had them as a resource to talk me through some of the steps and I think there's so much important information sharing about you know the social worker who does the home study and just all these these steps that can feel really overwhelming And if you think about just the paperwork, right, in terms of the bank statements and the doctor's statements, and there's so much that you need to pull together to to say that I am going to be a a good and worthy parent um, if you ended up going down certain roads. So I do think I made those decisions in community and in talking to others who'd gone down those steps. And I also think for a lot of it, you don't know until you are there. Right. And I know for sure that was the case with the infertility journey because, you know, I, I ended up changing my insurance because there was one that would cover a certain number of tries and one that wouldn't. And so I sort of had to wait and change my insurance and then try. Then I thought, OK, if they cover X times, that's what I'll do. But I wasn't ready to finish because I had had enough success and I would had two miscarriages, which people said, well, that's good. That means you could get pregnant. So you don't know until you're in that moment, how much more you have in you. And it's such a personal decision. And I I really think there's no right or wrong there. And so I always thought I would adopt a child and maybe have a child. And then after I went through all that and went through the adoption process, that's what made sense for me. You know, it made sense for us to have one child. And so you sort of have to take it as it comes and if you if you are then if you're partnered then sometimes there's a discussion between the partners about what makes sense for the family and also we have we have my partner's grandmother with us so in some ways we are caretaking for two individuals in our home and so you know it, it is the family of four that i that i expected in, in a different formation so i think you know i i think if if people are like me, they want to know the whole plan in the beginning, and they sort of map it out, and they think this is what's going to happen, and and sometimes it does, right? I have friends who, you know, they both wanted to give birth, they did, and they have two kids now, and that it's worked out that way. But for many, many families, it's a, it's a journey. At each step, you evaluate what makes sense for us. What can you know? Financial considerations play a role you know, what career opportunities there are play a role. There are so many pieces, especially, you know, after this sort of pandemic and COVID and all those women who've had to leave the workforce because of childcare and all the job loss. There's so many factors that play into this. But I think through it all, having community and having support is yeah. so crucial.
0: Absolutely sign up to get more information about the book because we had more poems we wanted to read together, but it's just titled Symmetry, where the connections between the biases that are existing and barriers that folks are facing in employment and those sort of expectations, are even how they are creeping into education system, but also how they were so pervasive in pandemic
1: parenting and, and making it through that process. Okay, Now, I think, I mean, this this poem, I think, really pulls together some of the tensions in terms of access in our society, and both in workplace discrimination, which is, you know, I was at EEOC for 15 years, so this idea of who gets hired and what's that based on um, is something I really care about professionally, and also just this idea of the attacks on affirmative action and sort of what access looks like and how those work together. So I think this is a piece that bridges some of that. Um, It's called Symmetry. As my daughter took her day two, fifth grade, beginning of the year standardized assessments on the other side of this wall, I listened to my former boss's boss's boss, Eric Dryband, tell the first circuit appellate court that the US federal government no longer believes in affirmative action. And so he says, if colleges look at the whole candidate, including race, they are engaging in illegal race-based discrimination. I reread my poem on affirmative action and wonder if that's one I should share at an upcoming legal conference. That poem was inspired by this line from a job advertisement. The candidate should hail from a well-regarded law school. As for the 5th grade parents, we were given careful instructions to encourage but not to help our children with their standardized tests. The school provided a handout entitled Supportive Phrases to Use with Students. In the two page document, it included versions of do not help your student four different times. It then gave sample language to use instead of helping your student. For math, they suggested we say, try working it out on paper. For reading, they suggested we say, try going back to the text. They suggested we say, it's okay if you don't know the answer. They suggested we say, make a guess and move on to the next one. After the student completes the assessment, they suggested we say, I'm really proud of you. You did a great job taking your time, showing your work, persisting through challenging questions. On the other side of the wall, I remind my daughter to take breaks, to drink water, to eat her green grapes. And after two days of tests with so many unknowable answers, the only question she had for me was what symmetry?
0: Well, I kind of want to just end it on that really thought-provoking and thoughtful note Um, So, Sunu, how can people find you and how can they find your work?
1: Thank you so much for asking. Um, Folks can follow me on Twitter. I also have a website just under my name, Sunu Chandy. And on my website, there's a place to sign up. Also, if you want updates about the book, the book is called My Dear Comrades, and it will be out by Regal House Press in 2023. In terms of the poem, Too Pretty, I also want to give a shout out to Split This Rock. Um, Split This Rock has an online website, The Quarry, and they actually publish this poem online. So you are able to find this online and they're a wonderful social justice poetry organization. So thank you so much for your interest and for creating so many important spaces for LGBTQ families. Thank you all
0: so much for listening. To keep the conversation going at home and with your own family and friends, we have some topics to share with your loved ones. So the first sort of keep this conversation going question for you and your family to consider are, what are some ways that you can be an activist through art or through changing policies in your town or school? And have you had an intense experience or big emotion recently? Maybe try expressing it through movement, writing a song, reading poetry, or maybe even a family primal yell in the woods. What can you do to express a big emotion or big experience in your life? So just again, thank you so much for listening. You can connect with Family Equality at www.familyequality.org and find us on social media. We are at Family Equality on Facebook and Instagram and we are at family underscore equality on Twitter.